Hello, I'm Alexander Rose, the Executive Director at the Long Now Foundation. Today's talk asks questions about an aspect of long-term thinking that has been on many minds lately, such as how can a country successfully inoculate a vast, divided population against a life-threatening disease? Or how can a government convince people to overcome their institutional distrust and traditional beliefs to try an unfamiliar vaccination for the sake of public health? Joining us today to explore these questions is Purna Singh, Professor of Political Science and International Studies at Brown University. Singh's research focuses not only on modern vaccination campaigns, but on their historical precursors like variolation. Her research looks at how health workers in China and India achieved one of the greatest scientific victories of the modern era, eradicating smallpox using a combination of folk beliefs and cutting-edge medical science. Joining Professor Singh in this discussion is one of the architects of that victory, past Long Now speaker and epidemiologist Dr. Larry Brilliant, one of the key public health officials who was responsible for eradicating smallpox in India. We will be weaving portions of Larry Brilliant's 02017 Long Now talk in conversation with Stuart Brand into this podcast to further explore the history of smallpox eradication in India. Before we get started, a quick reminder. The Long Now Foundation is a nonprofit and is entirely supported by donors and members like you. If you are already a member, thank you. Your support means the world to us. If not, please consider becoming the newest member of the Long Now Foundation and supporting this series. It only takes a few minutes to set up, and after that, you'll be connected to a whole world of long-term thinking. This podcast is brought to you by Stripe, a company that is working to build the economic infrastructure of the internet. They help people start internet businesses and accept online payments from customers all over the world. This talk was made possible by our partnership with Stanford University's Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences, otherwise known as CASBIS. CASBIS is a legendary fellowship program that brings together scholars from a wide range of fields to think about deep questions in the human sciences. Purna Singh was a 0-2020-2021 fellow at CASBIS when she gave this talk. Without further ado, let's hear from Purna Singh. Thank you, Xander. It's an honor to be here at the Long Now Foundation. And in my research, I look to the past to understand how to promote human flourishing today and in the future. And in that, I see my aims as very much in alignment with the goals of the foundation. So infectious diseases have posed one of the most serious and long-standing challenges to humankind. Especially since settled agriculture and the domestication of animals, infectious diseases have not only been the single largest cause of human morbidity and mortality, they've also generated enormous social tumult, triggering the economic reversals of fortunes and the collapse of once mighty political empires and decisively shaped the trajectory of world history. In the past couple of centuries, but especially in the 20th century, we have made unprecedented medical advances in research and treatments. And yet COVID-19 is a stark reminder of the grave threat that we continue to face from a host of deadly diseases naturally occurring, but also the use of germs as a tool of bioterrorism. For me as a social scientist, the control of infectious disease represents a fertile and yet relatively underexplored site of interactions between the state and its people. So historically, the control of disease has been an important driving force for the development of states as we think of them today. So Charles Tilly famously argued that wars make states. And yet, historians have shown that in as much as military conflict, it was war against an often more deadly foe than an enemy army, disease that prompted the extension of the state into previously autonomous social domains. On the one hand, Contagion prompted the development of institutions of control, civilian law enforcement agencies, police, customs, migration, intelligence services, quarantines, and pandemics led to the establishment and strengthening of health bureaucracies, city health boards that marked the exertion of unprecedented state power over societal actors like the church, 
city boards regularly overruled the clergy in prohibiting festivals, processions, and gatherings. On the other hand, contagion also encouraged the development of institutions of care, such as poor laws, relief for the needy, that underlay the emergence of welfare states. The control of disease and healthcare in general thus gradually went from being a private realm, dominated by religious and kinship-based organizations, to being recognized as within the jurisdiction of, and then also a key responsibility of a state towards its people. So Roosevelt famously said that the success or failure of any government in the final analysis must be measured by the health of its citizens. And key to this is the protection against disease. But if you think of conceptualizing how capable states are in terms of how effectively they control infectious disease, it's important to recognize that this is a particular type of state capacity that rests critically on a state's ability to gain compliance with society. So let's think for a second of the typology of the kinds of activities that states regularly undertake. Economic planning, the dispensation of justice, building of public infrastructure. On the other hand, are activities that states cannot be successful at without the compliance of society. So the best organized elections are only successful if people vote. Volunteer armies can only be raised if people join them. A state's tax base, often its main source of revenue, rests on people willingly, fairly paying taxes. A state's public health policy is only as successful as the extent to which people comply with it. Historically, states have elicited compliance with their policies on this rough spectrum from coercive to voluntary. On the coercive end, forcible inspection, raiding of homes, separations of patients from families, segregation of contacts, compulsory sterilization, compulsory vaccination laws that may or may not be accompanied by force. But such coercion is far from ideal. It's costly to implement, you need to have information, you need to monitor and punish those who are evading, and further, coercion risks societal pushback. Through much of history, people have gone to great lengths to resist public health mandates. In India, colonial reports document how families hid plague victims in lofts, in cupboards, in gardens. In addition to such evasion, across much of the world, coercive public health policies have provoked protests, uprisings, violent riots, even assaults on and the assassinations of state employees. Moving across the spectrum away from coercion, many states stop short of making vaccines compulsory, but they may require them for access to state resources, schooling, employment. And at the very end of this scale, we can think of compliance with public health interventions that is voluntary, willingly extended. This is the most desired type of compliance, but it is also the most elusive. It represents a category within state tasks that require popular participation that following a group of fellow New England economists, I call wicked hard. So for one, public health is preventive. Unlike when we take a pharmaceutical drug like a painkiller, we are not sick or suffering when we undertake a public health intervention. We are taking that action preemptively to protect us in the future. And we know from many studies that humans tend to be presentist we discount the future. Public health advice can, because of its link to science, be dynamic and also possibly contradictory. This can be hard to process. And further, public health interventions require behavioral change. Behavioral change that is intense and it is intimate. Therefore, Michel Foucault's term, biopower. Public health directives entail incursions, testing, incisions into our bodies and those of our often very young children. Changes to our everyday established habits and routines, don't smoke, exercise, wear a condom. Public health directives can, as the COVID pandemic has reminded us, upend how we live. They can change how we die alone or with our families. They can modify the rituals through which our loved ones remember us and send us onwards. 
In doing so, they can rub against often long-held norms, beliefs, and practices. They can challenge ways of seeing and being in the world, and they can lead us to question who we are, what we know, and our place in this universe. Compliance with many public health directives, such as vaccination, like some of those other tasks, voting, taxation, conscription, they represent what we call collective action problems. So although society is better off if all comply with their tax duties, each individual has an incentive to free ride on the contribution of others. Similarly for vaccination. Collective action is necessary to attain herd immunity, but once it is reached, the benefits of decreased mortality and morbidity are available to all. So given that like almost all health interventions, vaccines entail some risks, a poke, some side effects, individuals have an incentive to enjoy the benefits of that common good, to take advantage of this positive externality of herd immunity conferred on them by others' decisions to vaccinate without themselves bearing any of those costs. So how then do you encourage compliance with such a wicked hard task? In this next part of the talk, I'll try to answer this question by taking you on a journey of how the world's first ever vaccine was received in two of the largest nations and oldest civilizations in the world, China, and India. Vaccines have been hailed as the single most important intervention in public health. Immunization against infectious diseases has protected more children and adults from untimely deaths than any other form of treatment. The world's first vaccine was against smallpox, one of the oldest and deadliest diseases to afflict mankind. It claimed about one in three lives that often left survivors blinded and almost certainly disfigured, faces rendered this pitted, pockmarked lunar landscape. It was also a highly virulent, contagious disease. And this importance of smallpox as one of history's greatest killers is rivaled by its significance as the subject of, quote, the world's most triumphant achievement in medicine and public health. The global dissemination of the vaccine led to the eradication of smallpox through a global worldwide campaign led by the WHO. It is to date the only human disease to be eradicated from the globe. Both China and India have very long histories of smallpox. They compete for the orientalizing moniker of the cradle of smallpox. Both had highly well-developed and surprisingly resonant systems of beliefs and practices around the disease. In line with the disease deities that existed across much of the world, China and India had smallpox goddesses, Toshen Niang Niang in China, and Sitala Mata in India. And the two goddesses are strikingly similar, as you can see in their visual representations. In both China and India, there were traditional medical systems that saw smallpox as a disease of heat, and patients followed a cooling diet. Beginning around the 16th century, both China and India witnessed the emergence and spread of a new technique, which was embedded within and accompanied by these rituals the prophylactic practice of variolation. Variola is the smallpox virus. In order to understand how variolation worked, let's think for a moment of how a vaccine works. The fundamental idea behind a vaccine is that if we are deliberately exposed to a relatively harmless or the dead version of a germ, our immune system will then recognize and eliminate that germ rapidly if it encounters it out in the world. This logic comes from the practice of variolation, which was an essential precursor to vaccination. Say you were a child in China or India at this time who was lucky enough to survive a case of smallpox. A variolator, usually an itinerant folk healer and not a classically trained physician, who charged quite a sum for their services, would collect some material from your smallpox sore. Remember, this is a key way in which smallpox spread, and then use these scabs to produce a mild but protective infection in other children. The technique differed. It was administered through nasal encephalation in China and cutaneous incision into your arm in India. 
So if I was a child being violated in Canton, I would snort your scabs up my nose. And in Calcutta, the variolator would scratch it into my skin, very much like a modern day vaccine. Both techniques were equally effective. So this technique of variolation was carried from China and India into the Ottoman Empire and introduced through the advocacy of a heroic lady, Lady Mary Montagu, into Britain. Variolation then spread across much of Europe, also to North America, and this innovation from Asia led to substantial decreases in mortality across other parts of the world. This is Edward Jenner, and he is credited with inventing vaccines. When he was eight, Jenner was inoculated like thousands of other children in England. Later as a doctor in rural England, interacting closely with dairy maids who had a reputation for being specially beautiful, the reason they did not have a quote, ugly pockmarked face they reported to Jenner was because they were protected from smallpox because they had gotten cowpox. Now, exposure to cowpox was a pretty nasty disease if you were a cow, but it was quite benign if you were a human, and it protected you against smallpox. Jenner took this folk wisdom and replaced the variolous matter, the smallpox scabs that were used in variolation, with matter from the pustules of the cow. Voila! Variola vaccinae, Latin for smallpox of the cow, the world's first ever vaccine in 1796, which coined the term vaccine itself. Now this vaccine, cloaked in the colonists' language of spreading civilization, is sent back to China and India, homes of the indigenous knowledge upon which it was built. But from here on, from the time that the vaccine arrives in China and India at the beginning of the 19th century, to the eradication of smallpox in the mid-20th century, it is two very distinct st stories. In general, a far greater willing compliance with the vaccine in China than India. I use my comparative historical analysis of the cities of Canton and Calcutta in China and India during the 19th century and of the countries themselves in the mid 20th century to develop what I call a moral theory of compliance. What do I mean by this? A moral theory of vaccination has two components, the messenger, who is asking for compliance, and the message, how is compliance elicited? How is it framed? What is it that compliance is being sought for? This moral theory is rooted in a fundamentally different understanding of us and how we think and behave than the much criticized and yet dominant rational actor model. Homo economicus is a rational interest maximizer. In order to get Homo economicus to comply with the public health intervention, you just need to give her some more information about it costs and benefits, Homo economicus will tally this up, and if the advantages outweigh the risks, would she roll up her sleeve? And yet we know that facts don't change our minds. Studies have shown that providing people more information about vaccines is not only often ineffective, it can actually backfire. In contrast, research in social psychology, but also increasingly in neuroscience, shows that we develop attitudes and take actions in much more complex ways. Unlike Homo economicus, who processes information in a neutral Bayesian manner and maximizes interests, Homo moralis thinks and acts in biased, motivated ways. So to return to my moral theory of compliance, who is asking people to vaccinate must have a relationship of authority, of trust, of legitimacy with the people. And the message matters. My research brought out how public health messaging is more likely to resonate if it fits with two sources of motivation, cognitive and affective, and I'll discuss each in turn. Let's begin with the cognitive. We strive as humans for cognitive consonance. We are more likely to accept new information, as the sociologist Leon Festinger said, if we can find a schema through which to link the stimulus to previously understood experiences. Imar Tversky and Daniel Kahneman famously had the familiarity heuristic that a statement compatible with established beliefs or understandings, it feels more familiar. It leads to a sense of cognitive ease, and the statement is therefore more believable. Information that is not cognitively compatible, that 
constitutes a rejection of what we know is more likely to in turn be rejected, at least initially. So in the city of Canton in Imperial China in the early 19th century, vaccination was willingly adopted. And a key reason for this was that it was promoted by the local gentry. The gentry are either state officials or they're closely linked to the state through their having been conferred a degree in the imperial exam system. But they also have strong ties to society. A system of Confucian norms and the mandate of heaven prompts the local gentry over many centuries to be responsible and accountable for the welfare of people. So they enjoy a long legacy of trust and authority. And the way that the gentry endorses this new Janarian vaccine was by embedding it within traditional established ways of thinking about and treating smallpox. One of the ways that the gentry promoted vaccination was by writing prefaces for a vaccination manual written by one of the first vaccinators in southern China, Chiu Shi, who had learned the technique from the Surgeon General of the East India Company, Alexander Pearson. Chiu Shi's manual was technically a translation of a manual written by Pearson, but the translation did a few things to creatively link the vaccine to the principles and practices of Chinese medicine. For one, Chiu Shi got rid of this whole method of inoculation discovered in the Kingdom of England. So he changes the title. He adopts the writing style and the illustrations of traditional Chinese medicine texts. A further sinicization is that he adopts the same pre and post operative dietary and ritual protocols that had accompanied variolation. And finally, remember that variolation had happened in Canton through nasal insufflation. You're snorting the scabs up your nose. And now in the vaccine, there is an incision into the arm by a vaccination lancet that is radically new. Now, Chiu Shi and the gentry who are endorsing his manual make this acceptable by linking it to the familiar needling technique of acupuncture. Vaccination manuals such as this use ornate illustrations in traditional drawing styles to show vaccinators how to make incisions along acupuncture meridians that corresponded with smallpox. The customary cooling diet was also maintained, and often the Janarian vaccine was accompanied by traditional herbal formulas. In contrast, the vaccine meets with a far cooler reception in 19th century Calcutta. It arrives at exactly the same time in both Canton and Calcutta. It's introduced by the same agent, the East India Company. And these cities are key entrepots in the European, especially the British trading system. In fact, trade between Calcutta and Canton, silver, tea, and eventually opium, is the lifeblood of British imperialism. And you can get a sense of the importance of the two cities from this painting of the three money brothers all employed by the British East India Company that was commissioned by their father, Mr. Money, where the fingers of Robert and James Money are pointing to Canton and Calcutta, respectively. So Calcutta shares many socioeconomic political similarities with Canton, but unlike in Canton, the vaccine in Calcutta is resisted. An important reason is that British colonial officials do not have the same degree of trust or legitimacy as the gentry, Further, because the colonists spread of vaccination was part of a civilizing mission, this led them to present the vaccine as something totally new and different from the established practice of variolation, especially the worship of Sitala in which variolation was embedded. So variolation, which as I mentioned, was very effective and in fact formed the basis of knowledge on which Jenner built, was now described by the East India Company in Calcutta as backward and is dangerous. And yet, even though the technology of the vaccine was very similar to variolation, much more similar than in Canton, because people were accustomed to having an incision into their skin, yet most residents of Calcutta and the surrounding areas of Bengal avoided vaccination and continued to prefer variolation. In colonial documents, you repeatedly see reference to how a big reason for this was what medical historian David Arnold has termed the, quote, raw secularity of vaccination. This is a quote from one of the vaccine reports that says that the principal objection to vaccination was that it was done without any puja or worship or sacrificial offering. 
Unfortunately, the bulk of my archival sources for this period are colonial documents, and these are unsurprisingly laced with the racist judgments of their writers, colonial officers in the service of the East India Company, like the Money Brothers. And the resistance of Indians to the vaccine is attributed to their superstition, their prejudice. But in fact, the way in which vaccines were framed constituted a cognitive and cultural rupture with a cohesive, elaborate, and in many ways, quite sophisticated system of understanding and treating smallpox. It's interesting to note here that many of the instances in Calcutta in which the vaccines were accepted was when they were accompanied by all the same rituals that had accompanied variolation. So middle-class households who could afford it chose an auspicious day for the operation. They observed the old rituals, the dietary taboos, they employed a priest. And as Arnold writes somewhat tongue-in-cheek, they thanked Sitala rather than Jenner Sahib for the child's safe passage. Fast forward more than a century, India in the 1970s at the peak of the World Health Organization's global smallpox eradication campaign. Smallpox has been eradicated in Africa. South Asia is one of the last outposts of the virus. And the WHO has shifted from a strategy of universal vaccination to what is known as surveillance containment. A zealous and committed cadres of Indian doctors and health workers and foreign epidemiologists are going from village to village to locate cases of smallpox and vaccinate all contacts in a ring to stop transmission of the virus. Now, if you read the report of this campaign, a somewhat dry document called The Management of Smallpox in India, it's dedicated to a spiritual leader. Neem Karoli Baba, by all accounts, an extraordinary mystic who was also the guru of Ramdas, Timothy Leary, Krishna Das. But how it was that this report, penned by a doctor from San Francisco, Dr. Larry Brilliant, came to be dedicated to Neem Karoli Baba, I'll let you figure that out. And the hint is that you might want to dig into the archives of the Long Now Foundation seminars. But if you read this report and other reports, you can see the importance of smallpox zero teams, as they were called, convincing local notables, religious leaders to endorse the vaccination and how important this was for them to convince people to roll up their sleeve. Further, even though there was a substantial foreign and Western presence and role in the campaign, under the advice of culturally sensitive epidemiologists like Dr. Brilliant, they were very aware of the cultural mores and rituals associated with Sitala. Indeed, the smallpox zero teams realized that the families of smallpox patients might evade them, but they would never hide from the goddess. So they camped at Sitla Mandirs to detect cases and convince family members to be vaccinated. And they often set up vaccination stations at Sitala temples. In doing so, they actively presented themselves as working with, indeed, even devotees of the goddess Sitala rather than working against her. By this time, smallpox had been effectively eradicated from China for about two decades. Communist China, Mao had taken power in 1949, was able to eradicate smallpox through a mass vaccination campaign in the early 1950s. So in line with that first messenger component of my moral theory of compliance, a large part of this success was because the vaccination campaign was launched by the Chinese Communist Party, who enjoyed a tremendous degree of legitimacy, having emerged out of decades of long bitter fighting, first with the Kuomintang and then the Japanese. Vaccination had the full support of Mao, who was hugely popular in the 1950s. This is still well before the disasters of the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution. And at the grassroots level, it was communicated by the Communist Party cadres who were deeply embedded in and enjoyed the trust of local communities. Vaccination was part of the patriotic health campaigns. You were getting vaccinated to protect the health of your nation. And this gets to this second affective source of motivation in my moral theory of compliance. So I tried to present evidence for compliance because of cognitive motivations that public health directives were more likely to be accepted if they were linked to our established beliefs, norms, and practices about sickness and health. But willingness to vaccinate and compliance with health interventions more broadly is also greater if it taps into our affective sources of solidarity. What I have in my previous writings called a sense of we-ness. 
Nationalism is a particularly potent form of weeness. In my first book, I showed how feelings of national solidarity lead to a perception of a linked fate, a shared destiny which helps put in place social policies for the common good. Indeed, nationalism has been a powerful driver of popular mobilizations, against colonialism across Asia and Africa from the 40s to the 60s, against communism across Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union in the 1990s. And states have effectively drawn on this powerful motor of nationalism to encourage compliance with those tasks that present collective action dilemmas. Remember getting citizens to pay their taxes, joining your army, and possibly laying down your life for your country. So in conclusion, compliance with public health interventions remains one of the most pressing challenges of our time. We can see this today in the challenges of attaining herd immunity against COVID, but before and beyond. In 2019, the WHO identified vaccine hesitancy as one of the top 10 threats to global health. Effectively addressing this challenge begins from a better understanding of ourselves, a humbler understanding Homo Morales is a messy, motivated, emotional decision maker, but also a richer understanding. We are driven not just by maximizing our narrowly defined interests, but also by our perceptions of trustworthiness, legitimacy, by norms and values, by shared identities and solidarities. We are mere mortals, but we are also moral mortals, and this is our strength. Thank you. Well, that was really fantastic. I'd love to welcome Purna Singh, who's joining us uh, for the questions from her home in Providence, Rhode Island. Welcome, Purna. Thank you so much, Sanja. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I wanted to get into a couple questions that I have, and we'll also bring some questions in from the, our live audience. One of the first things I want to talk a little bit about is this Jenner story. I mean, he's often, you know, he's, he's credited as a as an inventor or a discoverer, and yet he really was was act, you know bringing folk knowledge into a more common and modern practice. And how do you how do you like to talk about invention versus discovery, and how these things get brought into the, you know, the I guess it would call the modern world. To some extent, I think, you know, invention, discovery, but also the kind of impetus of what was happening, just the geopolitics of colonialism of the time, and how quickly that shifted. You know, so vaccines are so interesting historically, because they really represented in many ways the first thing that kind of the, the Europeans had on the colonies, or so they thought, you know. So this was an, a clear to them kind of something better than what existed. Of course, what that meant was that they had to completely discard and deliberately, in a way, undermine the knowledge upon which the discovery or the invention of the vaccine was built. And so suddenly, variolation was backward. It was suspicious. I mean, of course, it was dangerous. The key thing about variolation was that, you know, it would be the equivalent would be actually giving someone a case of COVID a controlled case of COVID. But like COVID, because these are transmissible diseases, the danger was that it was transmissible in the way that, of course, you know, you're not contagious when you get a vaccine. And so, of course, there were dangers associated with variolation, but in one fell stroke with the kind of colonial discovery, the British discovery, the Western European discovery, it suddenly became that, you know, the knowledge variolation was, was painted as extremely dangerous, very backward. And so I think there are all these kind of politics um, in which kind of vaccination represents a really important moment, both for public health, but also for the understanding of geopolitics. And your question about invention versus discovery, I think, gets to the gets right to the heart of it. Indeed. And I think, there's, you know, there's such an interesting nationalistic component to this, which, you know, we're now seeing with vaccine hesitancy having nationalist um, elements now with COVID. And, you know, we often see people trying to use facts to change minds. But I think you really pointed out, um, you know, both in, in uh, Larry Brilliant's work and in this other work that you kind of have to meet people where they're at. You have to people both physically and, in, and culturally. And I'd love if you could just talk a little bit more about that and, and maybe how that might apply better to the situation we're in now. You know, the fact that at that and those very last stages of the eradication of smallpox, 
it wasn't necessarily that they were giving people more information about the disease. In fact, if anything, smallpox was a disease that was all too familiar to people. But I think, you know, the way that I put it in the, in my, in the talk and the way that I talk about it in my book is about both the kind of cognitive and the affective. So both, you know, where, as you said, where are we at in terms of almost everyone has certain sets of norms and understandings about what makes us sick and what's going to make us healthy. And I think kind of understanding what people think of as making them sick and, and making them well is really important. We know that there's an association in the US between people who believe in alternate forms of medicine and a certain degree of vaccine hesitancy. We knew this prior to the COVID pandemic. So again, trying to understand, you know, what what is their worldview? What is their understanding? And to meet that not with aggression or with skepticism or with hostility, but to kind of really meet it from a point of, meet, meet that point of view from, from a, a stance of empathy. And then to kind of, you know, bring that on board, uh, as well as, as I said, so that's the message part of it. And the second part is, of course, who is doing this convincing? I think, you know, the kind of the agent of persuasion has to be, and we've seen this again with COVID, uh, someone who enjoys uh, the trust, a degree of legitimacy on the part of the people. And that might be a state official, it might be your pediatrician, because most diseases, COVID is very different uh, in some ways, because it's a actually unusual disease that we are vaccinating ourselves as adults. For most infectious diseases, we receive vaccines as children. And so I think, you know, in, in some ways, the pediatrician or the doctor. So we have to kind of really work hard both into developing our understanding of a sympathetic understanding of, of people's repertoire, their norms about what constitutes sickness and healing, and then, you know, the understanding what their what their kind of ecosystem of trust and authority and legitimacy is. And the final thing that I'll say before I turn it back to you, Xander, is that I think of nationalism here as both as both the promise, but also the pitfall of it. And I think we sometimes tend to talk about the drawbacks of nationalism, which are all too evident in the kind of tragic vaccine nationalism that continues, you know, in India, where I'm from, there's still a huge degree of vaccine scarcity, and yet we have this vaccine abundance in the US. And much of this is a product of the kind of vaccine nationalism through which vaccines are being distributed against COVID. But I do want to kind of point out to that part of my research that shows how nationalism can be this affective motor. So if facts don't change our mind, what does, right? So having vaccines be linked to the way that we think about health and healing will change our mind, but also it being linked to this emotion, you know, how, what are we motivated by emotionally? And I think their nationalism has been such a powerful motivator of humans historically since the beginning of the nation state. People have been willing to lay down their lives for the nation. And so I think, you know, again, the experience of the patriotic health campaigns, but also the experience of Cuba and many other countries points to how nationalism can be mobilized as this very powerful affective tool, even though it remains this kind of very dangerous divisive force as well. So, you know, you're right, information doesn't change our mind, but I try to want, I want to kind of try to focus on what does change our mind and how we can take those lessons to our understanding of the present and the future. Thank you. And uh, this would be a great time to bring in uh, Larry Brilliant. Um, he's joining us from him, his home, uh, actually not too far from us. Welcome, Larry. Hello, Xander. Thank you for inviting me. And Brenna, that was wonderful, both your talk right now and your book and the film. I I came away watching your, your talk with the same feeling I had when I read your book, how could one person know so much? It's really a pleasure to, to spend some time with you. Thank you so much. I cannot tell you what an immense honor it is to have you join the conversation, and I'm so grateful to you. When you talk about um, meeting people where they are, probably no place in the world has there ever been a more legitimate reason to have an anti-vax movement than India, because in order to make the vaccine, you had yes. to take cows and uh, imprison them and scarify their belly and implant pox and then harvest it and kill the cow. So in order to get the vaccine, the death of something sacred and honored and loved in India, a cow. 
so we we encountered a, a, a tremendous amount of resistance. I wouldn't call it resistance. I think it was the right response. Um, mm -hmm. It was so ferocious that, as you know, the 1895 Bengal Immunity Act was created, one of the very few uh, in, uh, laws that was laid down because of the Calcutta um, aversion to being vaccinated. So when we were in the program and, and towards the end of it, when we felt that this um, reaction against the vaccine was understandable and legitimate, uh, my wife Girija and I would stay in Shitalama temples. We would sleep in the temples. We would talk to the Pujaris and we would say, look, uh, how can, what can we do? This disease is killing children. And they would say, well, that's not Shitala's intention. And we would talk about what was the intentionality of the deity. And in the end, we reached an understanding. And the understanding was the Pujaris would say, listen, uh, we have seven other rash diseases that Shitalama is in charge of. Maybe we can help you with this one. And uh, when I told him that my guru had said that uh, the eradication of smallpox was God's gift to humanity, these uh, pujaris said, let us help you. And they would take us to the villages. They would sign the uh, posters. They would guide us to vaccinate people. They would show us where cases were. And we could not have eradicated uh, smallpox without the help of Shitlama and her priests. It couldn't Absolutely. Have been I think it's, you know, every time I hear it, even though I've, I've, you know, been in the archives for far too long, I've, you know, read everything you've written, it's still such a poignant, moving story. And of course, it's resonant. If we go back to, you know, if we again go back to this theme of learning from other pandemics, I keep going back to Ebola and the fact that the, so much of the transmission was happening through funeral rituals and much, you know, the kind of advising of people to just stop laying their hands on the corpse was not enough until, as you kind of point out, the they were able to get the buy-in, the support, the endorsement of the religious leaders, the clergy, who said, you know, we can kind of send the spirits on without. The healing touch can happen, you know, from afar. But I think that kind of careful cultural work requires, you know, it requires institutions, it requires empathy. And, you know, we were talking before we went live that the CDC which is such a hollowed out institution. I mean, you were part of the CDC. You and the WHO epidemiologists were going across the world because in a way, the, the battle against COVID is just, we're not even there in terms of in India. There is still so much vaccine scarcity. There's also a fair degree of hesitancy and the international community, the US, the CDC were so critical. They were at the vanguard of the eradication of this deadly infectious disease. And you were all there doing this kind of work. And so I can't help but think, you know, this is the kind of work we need to be doing in the rural hinterland in the US to be able to understand, you know, what are people's belief systems? Who can we reach out to convince them? What are the messages that we can frame this within? And then how can we take this to other parts of the world, which are slowly going to begin to kind of move from a, a stage of vaccine scarcity to vaccine abundance and reluctance the way that we have in the U.S.? So I ask you as a historian, uh, what major transformative social movement occurred without the religious institutions, without the churches. And then I asked the very tough question, which is right now about COVID, where are the churches? Where are the temples? Where are the synagogues, the mosques? Where is the religious community helping to vaccinate the, the country? One third of the country is unvaccinated, 125 million Americans right now are completely vulnerable. And around the world, that number is probably close to 7 billion who are still vulnerable. Um, we won't have enough vaccine, certainly not to waste. And the United States and the UK have purchased three times the amount of vaccine that we could ever use, even if we vaccinated everybody three times. So what, what will we do when India is creeping up to three or 4% vaccinated how, how will we engage all of the most powerful feelings of nationalism and, uh, in, in my mind, the religious and spiritual community? They've been absent from this battle. 
Absolutely. And I, you know, so I'm a comparative political scientist who takes a historical view to this. And unfortunately, that those historical lessons are are on the one hand quite evident, and on the other hand, the kind of taking up of that lessons, as you point out, Larry, is is missing. So I think you're right. The kind of role of the clergy that has the role of religious institutions, that's something that needs to happen. Of course, in India, that has become further complicated by the fact that, of course, the rise of Hindu nationalism means that religion has taken on a very different meaning than when it was when you and Nirja, you know, whose articles I've also read, um, you know, I mean, I just I, I laugh every time I say it. They're just brilliant, right? Is that is is I think that you know so so I I worry as you say we begin to get to that point in other parts of the world like in India, because that relationship um, you know of people like me who are not necessarily on board with Hindu nationalism how do how do those you know it it's become so pol- religion itself much like in the U S has become so politicized it has become so polarized that it's not so easy to be able to kind of be able to take on board those religious leaders or religious ideas in the way that it was back in the 1960s and 70s. And so, you know, I, I hate to kind of to kind of bring, you know, to make this negative again a little bit. But again, the content of nationalism has changed. And so to me, the kind of challenge is this recovery, this kind of moral recovery of an idea of nationalism that stands above ethnic divisions and religious divisions that can motivate people as a kind of patriotic duty and to be able to find some idea of religion as spirituality rather than as these kind of religious institutions and political ideologies to be able to, so I, you know, to me, like vaccination is at is at once both a spiritual duty and a patriotic call. That's how smallpox was eradicated. It was a combination of spirituality and, you know, religious leaders and norms and trust and nationalism. And good science. And of course, the good science is the backdrop of all of this. I want to thank uh, you, Larry. Back in 02017, Dr. Larry Brilliant joined us to discuss his memoir, Sometimes Brilliant. In his conversation with Stuart Brand, Dr. Brilliant told us about his personal experience on the front lines battling smallpox in India, a campaign at the center of Singh's work. Here's how Larry worked the challenge of smallpox eradication. So when we were working in the smallpox program, you have to understand, almost nobody believed we could eradicate smallpox. Smallpox was not really a regular disease. Mm -hmm. It was ubiquitous all over the world. Everybody had it. I mean, it... You, the scale of it was so much that in the 20th century, how many of you were alive in the 20th century? Now, come on, that was only 18 years ago. So, I mean, right? In the 20th century, 500 million people died from smallpox. Half a billion people. I mean, it's not like that was a long time ago. But it was everywhere. And uh, almost everybody in WHO thought that we were crazy. Smallpox was the Fourth disease considered for eradication. We had failed to eradicate yellow fever, mm. mostly because monkeys do not stand in line putting their arms out to get vaccinated. And monkeys get yellow fever. We had failed to eradicate yaws. We had failed to eradicate malaria. Mm. So it wasn't unduly skeptical to think that we wouldn't be able to eradicate smallpox. And in fact, in all the time I worked in WHO, I never met a single WHO official who believed that we could eradicate smallpox, except the people working on the smallpox program. And I write in the, in the book a story of uh, the head of communicable diseases. This is the top guy. DA worked for him. We all worked up for the head of communicable diseases, Dr. Ignatovich, a Polish epidemiologist. And he said, trying to eradicate smallpox in India is one of the dumbest things I've ever heard of. It's a fool's mission. Mm-hmm. You might be able to eradicate it in America, because it's a rich country. You might be able to eradicate it in Burma because it's a totalitarian government, but you'll never eradicate it in India. And I'm so sure that if you ever could eradicate smallpox, I will eat the tire from a Land Rover. (laughs) And really, one of the happiest days of my life was when Nicole Grasset took a tire of a Land Rover to Palam Airport in New Delhi and put it in a crate and wrote a little note, Dear Dr. Ignatovich, enclosed, please find one tire from one Land Rover, which you kindly 
report back to us the texture, the bouquet, and if you need any mustard or ketchup. <laughs> so it, it, it wasn't exactly that everybody agreed that we'd be able to do that. It was hard. So is it incremental progress that was keeping people encouraged that one region or another would get cleansed and that would take you to the more That is exactly one? it. It was a great, it was a great strategy. Mm -hmm. you, you kind of pick off the low-hanging fruit mm -hmm. and you, you work in countries that you think you've got a better chance at it. And by the time we got there, there were only four countries that still had smallpox. Uh, when the program began in 1965, mm -hmm. there were 35 countries. And then we did the same thing inside India. You would go to the, the states that were better developed, which were the southern states, mm -hmm. and you'd work there first. And you put a ring around the most difficult states, which were the four Hindi-speaking states, Madhya Pradesh, Bihar, Uttar Pradesh, and for, for the, we'll, we'll call Bengal a Hindi-speaking state. It isn't really. But those four states were the last states in the world with smallpox. And this little girl with that balloon, that's the last case of killer smallpox to occur in nature. And her name is Rahima Banhu. And she was in Bangladesh in a little island called Bola Island, the very same island that Wavy and John Gerridge and I set off to go to that had had that terrible cyclone. Hmm. And she was in a little village called Karalia Village. And when the scabs fell off her and she coughed and the last viruses left her body and landed on the the ground in Bangladesh, and they were cooked by the sun. That was the end of an unbroken chain of transmission of one of the worst diseases, if not the worst disease, in human history. Dr. Brilliant goes on to talk about the hopeful message of his book, a message that we, a population currently in the midst of a pandemic, can hopefully also find inspiration in. I wanted a book that would be a proof point of a time when all of us working together could do something magical. And not just something that you make up, but something for which there's historical fact. I wrote a scientific book on smallpox eradication, peer-reviewed. That's what I used to make sure that every date and every number was right. Girajit kept the diary when we were with Maharaja, so mm -hmm. did I. I wrote three, 400 reports for WHO. So the science in the book is right. And I wanted that story of how we had eradicated smallpox to offer it as not an antidote, but contrary evidence to the idea that we can't do anything, because we can. We can really do great things together. This conversation has taken you along one of the many paths of long-term thinking. If you'd like to learn more about our projects, take a deeper dive into our ideas, become a member, or watch the talks and see our show notes, go to longnow.org. You'll also find the full audio and video of the talk you heard today. As always, we'd like to thank our speakers, our listeners, our sponsors, and our members. Our work would not be possible without you. Today's music comes from Jason Wool, as well as Brian Eno's January 07003, Bell Studies for the Clock of the Long Now. Big thanks to our production team, Daniel Engelman, Justin Oliphant, Andrew Warner, Jacob Cooperman, Forrest Pound, Shannon Breen, Casey Kripe, and the entire Long Now staff who make each of these conversations possible. Talk to you next time, and until then, keep moving patiently, responsibly, and exploring the long view. Mm -hmm.